How is everybody? You know, a rambunctious crowd tonight. It's good. It's good. And uh, we're not eating meats or sweets. How's everyone doing with that, right? <laughs> yeah, I haven't had coffee since Monday, and um, I haven't murdered anyone, so I feel like I'm winning right now. So that's good. It's rough. I've had this like uh, constant headache since Monday. Man, it's crazy how dependent we become on that stuff, isn't it? It's nuts. Every year, uh, this is a true story, um, every year I get done, um, I'll get like 30 days into this fast and I haven't had coffee, you know, in a month and I'm just like, yeah, I'm never going to drink coffee again and I tell my wife, I'm like, this is the year, you know, I've been doing this for like 11 years now, right? Like, this is the year I never go back to coffee and it's like day 42 of the year and uh, right when we get off the fast and I like have like, I don't know, I miss a couple of hours of sleep or something. And it's like, like a junkie, man. I like run right back to Starbucks. I'm like, give me one of those Trento ones with no, don't even worry about ice, right? And it's just like, and um, it's like relapse right back into it. Yeah. And uh, that goes on for 11 months. And then we go back to January and I do it all again. So I've been doing that for 11 years now. It's fantastic. So anyways, if you were not here last week, we did the vision service. If you were here last week, I, I hope that was informative and I hope it was good for you. And um, especially if you're new to the church, it's kind of good to know what you're getting involved in. And um, I hope you guys are excited about, you know, starting a Woodbury campus and all that jazz. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to that. And um, okay, so this week, though, we're going to get back to what we do. And what we do is we go through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse, line by line. And tonight we're in the, the book of John, we're in chapter 9. If you don't know where that is, it's the fourth book of the New Testament, ninth chapter. Uh, we're going to do the whole chapter tonight. It's pretty short and sweet, and um, it'll, be, it'll be pretty easy to go through. And what we talked about two weeks ago when we did chapter 8 is we talked about this. We asked ourselves, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, and what is the price of following Jesus? Talked about that right at the, uh, the, it was the first lesson of the new year. Actually, it was on New Year's Eve when we taught this lesson a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what is a disciple of Christ? What is the price of following Jesus? Here's what we're going to talk about tonight, and I'll explain this. We're going to talk about this. The only pathway to seeing is acknowledging that we are blind. The only pathway to seeing is acknowledging that we are blind, okay? So if you're new, uh, you should have a notes handout in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. If you have a smartphone, the YouVersion app or the Bible app, it's free. You can download that. Go in the bottom right. I think it's more. Click on that. Our church will pop up. All the notes and all that stuff are on there. I'm going to read it all to you anyways, so I'll read a little chunk. I'll go back to the best of my abilities, and I will explain it um, the best I can. Okay? I think you guys are going to like this chapter. Very famous chapter of the Bible. There's some very famous things spoken from this, some very important, pivotal scripture from this. And so we'll dive into this, and uh, we'll see what happens. Okay? Let me pray. And we'll jump into um, John chapter 9. Father, Lord, I love you, God. Uh, I want to echo what Kyle said. It just feels like everyone's ready in the room tonight. And um, that's a good feeling, God. It feels like we're ready to receive something. And so, Father, uh, I pray, God, just like what this chapter is about, I pray that you open our eyes tonight. I pray that you open up our ears tonight. Lord, let us see what you're doing. Lord, let us hear what you want to say. God, I pray that you keep your hand. Lord, your word is perfect, but I am imperfect so I pray that you keep your hand on me as I teach your word tonight to the best of my abilities. Father, we want to pray for every church in our community. Pray, God, that you bless their leadership and uh, their pastors, God. Pray, Lord, that you bless all the nonprofits in our town that are serving your kingdom and advancing your kingdom, Lord. And we just pray that 
your kingdom is known and that you are famous, God, not our individual churches and not our pastors, but you, Lord, and your kingdom. Father, Lord, we love you, Jesus. Just, Lord, let us to take away something great from this evening and from your word. And we pray all this in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, here we go. I'm going to read a little bit. I'll do my best to break it down. And let me, let me set up where this is happening or what's going on. If you weren't here with us a couple of weeks ago, Jesus has been now ministering for about two and a half, three years, okay? So at this point in John, we're at kind of the tail end of Jesus's life on earth. He's got about six months to live, all right? So um, as he's ministering, as he gets further and further into to, uh, reaching out to people, the Pharisees, who are kind of the bad guys, they hate Jesus at this point. And they don't, they don't hate Jesus because he's doing miracles or because he's popular. They hate Jesus because Jesus claims to be God. And in chapter eight, they hate him so much because he claims this, that it says they pick up rocks to throw at him and kill him, but he eludes them. He goes back into the city in Jerusalem, and this is where we pick up. Okay, here we go. As he was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work, and as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he sent, so he left, washed, and he came back seen. His neighbors and those formerly, uh, who, those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, isn't this the man who sat begging? Some said he's the one. No, others were saying, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. Therefore they asked him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. So as Jesus and his disciples were walking around, okay, they're walking through Jerusalem. They see a man who had been blind ever since he had been born. And the disciples asked Jesus, they said, hey, Jesus, did he do something wrong or did his parents do something wrong that caused him to be blind? Was it his spiritual condition that put him in this physical condition? And now here's the problem with what they were asking. A couple of things. One, they were thinking very legalistic and they were getting this idea from an exodus that said that if we do certain things that our children and our children's children will be affected by our sin. And they were thinking of it in a very legalistic way that what we do something wrong and God kind of curses us or does something physically to us. But that's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the disciples didn't look at the blind man with compassion or love. They looked at him like, some, like he was some kind of project or some kind of theological conversation. And we actually see this a lot in modern day Christianity. We don't look at the poor or the needy or people who are struggling as kind of people that we should fall in love with and help and walk alongside. We just say, oh, we'll pray for them. Or, you know, why are they the way they are? And we kind of put this gap or divide between us and people who are different from us. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. They just looked on with curiosity, but not love for the man. 
So, Jesus healing blind people is the most common miracle in the Gospels. No miracle happens more than Jesus healing the blind. And what the, the, the purpose behind this is, is Jesus does a physical thing to set up a spiritual truth. And the truth is this, is that Jesus is the light of the world, and whoever follows Jesus will never live in darkness. So what Jesus came to do, and he chose certain people to physically heal their sight, to reveal this greater point that he has come to, to help us with our spiritual vision, that he is to make our spiritual eyes open up, and he shows this point by literally healing many blind people, and we're going to read the story of one tonight, okay? Okay, so back to the disciples, though. So the disciples are asking Jesus, what's up with the blind guy? Was it his parents that sinned? Was it he that sinned? How did he end up this way? Now, listen, ultimately, sickness and death are in the world because of sin. They are in the world because of man's rebellion, right? We're going to have to give Adam and Eve lots of high fives in heaven because we blame a lot of stuff on them, right? And, um, but because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we now have death, we now have sickness. But uh, we must not assume that someone's spiritual health is the reason why they're in a certain physical condition. There are times, though, because of the way that we live, if we're riddled with shame, if we're riddled with guilt, if we stay up till five o'clock in the morning looking at porn and we, don't get, we only get two or three hours of sleep before work, physically it's going to take a toll on us. So guys, there are times when our sins physically affect us and mess us up, but we can never look at someone who's suffering and look at someone who's sick or look at someone who has some kind of a disability and just automatically claim there is something spiritually wrong with them. That is horrible theology. So Jesus makes it clear to the disciples, he didn't do anything wrong. His parents didn't do anything wrong. God allowed this blindness to happen so God's works will be displayed in him. There was a reason, and it wasn't because of sin, that this man was the way he was. So Jesus continues with the conversation. And he says, basically, at this time we live in the day, right? The light of the world, Jesus is in the world and we can see things clearly and he's doing amazing things. And he says, but a night is going to come when no one's going to be able to work. And at this point, Jesus had not told his disciples that after his crucifixion, he's gonna send the spirit of God to us and that we will be the light. What he's talking about is the week before he's crucified, which we know is going to come up pretty soon in the story, right? The week when Jesus is crucified, it is dark. The disciples seem powerless and helpless as their leader gets taken away and violently murdered. But after the crucifixion of Jesus, it says that the Holy Spirit is poured out on his followers. And now, since Jesus has ascended into heaven, do you know who the light of the world is now? It's us. Not because there's anything special about us, but because the light of everything now lives in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. Now we are the beacons of light. Jesus even said that. You're the light of the world. You're the salt. You're what goes out and makes things different. And of course, that's by his Holy Spirit. And the only way we receive his Holy Spirit was because Jesus died on the cross. Okay. So Jesus walks up to the blind guy, right? Now, there's, there's many parts in the Bible that I find humorous. I don't know if it's because I'm twisted or messed up or what. But imagine if you're one of the 12 disciples. You're talking about this blind guy with Jesus. Jesus walks up, right? Spits on the ground. 
makes a little mud pie, picks it up, spreads it on the guy's eyes, right? Peter's probably like, you know, like, what did he just do? Spreads some mud on this blind guy's eyes. And we have to ask, why? Why didn't he just go up and say you're healed? Or why didn't he just snap his fingers or say something? Or why go through this process to spread this on his eyes? Now, some people believe that the clay that he used had some kind of medicinal properties. Now, if we believe that there was something about the clay in the ground that had medicinal properties, A, we would have already found some way to make some kind of magic potion out of this to heal all blind people. And the other thing that's bad about that is we believe that it's the instrument that heals the man and not the healer himself. So the mud had nothing to do with it. The only thing the mud probably had to do with the healing of this man is this man was blind. He could not see, right? Been blind from birth. He didn't know what colors were or what people looked like. He didn't know anything like that. So he probably needed something to touch, something to feel to help him with his faith. So this mud on the eyes was probably the senses, the smell, the feel, the texture. It helped him with his faith. And so God knew that he maybe needed this extra shove. And so he went through this process. The other part of it is this. This process shows us that Jesus demands obedience out of us. So again, Jesus had the power to do whatever. He could have just stood from a distance and said, your eyes are healed and his eyes would have been fine. But Jesus has the power to do anything. But in his wisdom, Jesus tends to set up scenarios to test our obedience. He still does this to us now. Much like the process of this blind man, he asks us to do some things. So here's the thing. The clay didn't heal the man's eyes. It was the man's obedience to the words of Jesus that healed his eyes. And we see a lesson to this. If I do what Jesus tells me to do, I will be healed. If not physically, at least spiritually. And that we will grow in him, but we have to do what Jesus tells us to do. So the man's healed, right? Mud on his eyes. He goes down to this body of water, washes it off. Imagine that. Opens his eyes and for the first time in his life, seen. He's probably freaking out. He's probably yelling or crying or screaming or laughing or whatever the case may be. Makes his way back into town. His neighbors see him. And of course, they're freaked out and they're like, hey, that's our neighbor that could never see. And they're just like, no, 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 no. He looks like him, but I don't think it's him. And he's like, it's me. It's me. I just got healed. And so the neighbors run out. They're asking what in the heck happened. And then they say, hey, we want to meet the guy that did this to you. And he said, well, I don't know where he is yet right? His name's Jesus, but I don't know where the heck he went. And so now we move on to the next part. So they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees always ruin the party if you haven't been here for the gospel of John. The Pharisees are kind of the bad guys, right? When they walk in the room, it's like, dun, 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 everything kind of goes down and it's not cool, right? But they brought the man to the Pharisees, The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such miracles? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about Jesus since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews didn't believe this about him, the fact that 
the blind man receive sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say is born blind? How then does he see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Asked him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. That means the Jewish leaders. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as Messiah, they would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, verse 25 one of, the, one of the most famous passages of scriptures from the New Testament. The blind man, or formerly blind man, answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Okay, if you've never been with me since I've been teaching the gospels, I've taught Matthew, I've taught John, this is my second time. Sometimes Jesus can get a little sassy, if we're just being honest. And there are sometimes in the Bible when he gets a little sassy. Now, Jesus has healed people on the Sabbath day before. It was against the law for anyone to do any work on the Sabbath. Jesus broke this law several times to prove a point. And the point that he was trying to prove is that Jesus ultimately has authority over the Sabbath, right, and what goes on on the Sabbath day. And then the other point he's trying to prove is the whole point of a Sabbath day is to do spiritual things. Now, if you go back and read the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments is honor the Sabbath day. And in the Old Testament, it was very legalistic in its approach. The Sabbath day was a specific day that had to be set aside to where you rest, you connect with God, you don't work. There's a whole slew of things you couldn't do. In the New Testament, the idea of Sabbath has changed. It's not a legalistic, ritualistic, regimented, specific day. The idea of the Sabbath and why the Lord wants us to have a Sabbath is the Sabbath is more as a lifestyle. It's where we intentionally rest. It's where we intentionally grow closer to God through reading, through prayer, through meditating, getting closer to Him, and that we are to honor that. And that's one of the points that Jesus is trying to prove. It's not about a specific day. It's about getting closer to God and doing the Lord's work. So, the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, right? They're the smart ones, they're the powerful ones, they're the rich ones, they're the ones in charge. They bring in the blind man who'd been healed and they're about to go at it with him, right? The first answer he gave when they asked, who did this and how did it happen? He said, I don't know who he is. I don't know, I just know this. I was, I was healed by him and that's all I know. And as the Pharisees continue to push and as they continue to grill, he kind of steps it up. We see that this man's faith is going to grow big time. We'll see it again here in a second. His faith is growing, and finally he says, okay, he's a prophet. That's like the highest compliment that this man would have known to give Jesus. He didn't know he was God incarnate. He didn't know he was the Son of God. He didn't know he was the Messiah, but he knew he was something amazing because of what he did. So he said, he's a prophet, and that would have been a big deal. See, the last prophet that the Jews had seen was John the Baptist, and everyone loved John the Baptist, except for one family who had his head cut off. But besides that, everyone loved John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the only prophet within a 430-year block. So that was pretty special. 
And so when this man said that Jesus was up at least to that caliber, this would have really upset the Jews. This would have really upset the Pharisees, this religious order, okay? So they didn't believe it, right? They're like, whatever, man, this story was made up. This guy could always see. They said, someone go get his parents. Let's go ask his parents about this. So since they didn't believe the story, they summoned the parents of the healed man and they said, hey, is this guy your son? And how did he receive his sight? And they said, well, yeah, he's our son. He's always been blind. We, he can obviously now see, but we don't know how. We don't know how this happened. And what they said was this. They said, why don't you ask him? He's of age, which means he was probably at least about 30 years old. That's when a man was kind of a man when you were 30 years old in this culture. They said, ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. And the reason why they did that is because the Jewish leaders, if you didn't agree with them, they would excommunicate you. Now, in our day and age, if you get excommunicated from a church, you just hop across town and go to another church, right? In this culture, if you got excommunicated from the temple, there's really only one temple in, in Jewish culture at this time, and it was in Jerusalem, the temple, right? And if you got excommunicated where you couldn't worship in the temple, your social life was dead. People wouldn't talk to you. You couldn't do business. Your friends wouldn't speak to you anymore, and you were, they would even claim that you were spiritually lost. So this was a big deal, and they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. So they said, uh, you ask him. He's a grown man. He can answer for themselves. So what they do is they are looking at the parents, grilling the parents, and they turn back to the man who'd been healed. And they say, give glory to God. This is the same thing as us saying, swear to God. Okay, the, you know, this is for real. Take it seriously. Give glory to God. And they said this to scare the man into admitting, one, that Jesus is a sinner, and two, admitting that Jesus and God have no association. So they were trying to scare this man. After threatening to excommunicate his parents, they now turn to him, and they're going to try to scare him, okay? And so what he says is essentially a simple testimony, and it's gone down as some of the most famous words in the entire Bible. Songs have been written about it, books have been written about it, Bible studies have been taught on it, and this is what he says. Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know, but one thing I know is I was blind, and now I see. That's powerful, guys. I don't have all the answers, I don't know all the answers to all the things you're asking. All I know is one time I couldn't see, and now I can see. And what we see is this statement, I was blind, now I see. This leads him and it will lead us into extremely turbulent waters. Now listen, if you ask me why I believe in Jesus Christ and why I'm a Christian, I believe there is a logical, reasonable side to Christianity. Some people will argue there's nothing logical or reasonable about Christianity. I disagree. That's why most of our laws are built off principles from the Bible, because many of them are extremely practical. Treat others as you want to be treated. Don't go into debt because the rich will take advantage of the poor. Um, don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions. There are so many principles from the Bible that are extremely logical. In a marriage setting, in a financial setting, in a sex and gender roles setting, in all kinds of different settings, there's a logical and reasonable side to our faith. There is also another side to our faith that is completely outside of our understanding. 
And we will not have the answer to every question, and we will not be able to logically explain every point. That's why they call it faith. Faith is the belief in things not seen. And the reason why there is that side of it is, is because Christianity must be an experience. There must be this aha moment, this light bulb that goes out when we are completely persuaded, we are convinced, and no one can turn us around on this. Every Christian must reach that point where the light bulb goes off and you say, this is it. I can't explain it all. All I know is I was blind and now I see. There must be that turning, that moment, that experience that we have. And I would dare say there's a lot of people that turn their back on their faith because they've never had that genuine deep moment with Jesus Christ. And we need that. Paul talked about this. He talks about it in Romans 8. Maybe three of the most important words in the entire Bible are, I am persuaded. And Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death or life, angel or rulers, things present, things to come, hostile powers, height or depth or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a man that had his head cut off by the Roman Empire. His contemporary Peter, who was crucified upside down, almost all of his contemporaries were violently murdered. And so one has to have it so embedded in their head, in their heart, that come hell or high water, come hostility, come all the forces of hell against me. I'm persuaded that this is right. I'm persuaded that this is the right answer. I'm persuaded that I'm on the right track. Last part. You're going to see how sassy this guy gets here in a second. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to be his disciples too, do you? That probably didn't go over very well. They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciples, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't even know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Let me pause here. This man who was a beggar just yesterday is giving a theological lesson to the theologians. Look at how God is working through this guy. He's a beggar. He's the lowest of the low. He couldn't even work in this society, and he has given a theological lesson to the cream of the crop. Amazing. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you're trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, he found him and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him, and in fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and they asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. That's some interesting stuff here. Um, I said Jesus gets sassy sometimes. Obviously, sometimes people who are saved by Jesus can also get sassy. So after being asked again about the healing, the man replies, I already told you once and you didn't listen. And then he kind of puts the cherry on top and says, what, do you guys want to follow Jesus too? And that probably infuriated them, right? But we see this formerly blind man, he keeps a level head. And what's happening, look at this, what's happening is his spiritual sight is starting to catch up with his physical sight. He once was blind and he could see physically, and now he was blind spiritually and he was starting to see spiritually as well. And he's bothered that the religious leaders cannot see spiritually. It bothers him, and we see it come out in how he teaches them. So, the Pharisees ridiculed the man, but the man continued to stand firm and look at the wisdom that this man shows in this conversation. He says something that is extremely profound. This beggar says to the theologians, teaching them theology, he says, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing, he listens. Now, this exposes a huge problem, a huge theological problem in modern-day Christianity. We often say as Christians that God always listens to us. Not true. Many times in the Bible, it says that God does not listen to us. It, God will listen to sinners who are coming to repent. When we come to him and say, God, forgive me, I want to turn my life around, he listens and he acts to that. But if we choose to live in rebellion, the Bible says multiple times that God does not listen to us. Listen, there's a reason why a lot of us don't have prayers answered. And there's two reasons why we don't have a lot of our prayers answered. Not all the time, but there are two reasons why. We don't seek God's will and we don't live in his will. You guys with me? We often wonder, does God hear us? Is God going to listen to me? Is he going to do what I want him to do? We have to pray for things in his will, and we have to live in accordance to his will, which means we have to live the Christian life. That's why God doesn't hear us. Well, Corey, where do you get that from? Well, probably the most famous scriptures from the Old Testament, where it talks about this. My people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear them. Then I will hear them. Then I will forgive them. Then I will heal their land. But until we humble ourselves and until we turn away from our evil ways, God may hear us, but he doesn't listen to us. Multiple times, it says this in the word of God. So, since this blind or formerly blind beggar is given a theology lesson to the theologians, this makes them mad they throw a couple more insults at him, call him a sinner from birth and all these things, and then they threw him out. That means they literally threw him out. They picked him up, threw him out of the temple. And not only that, they were metaphorically throwing him out of society, basically. He could no longer worship with them. He could no longer be a part of all the festivals. He was out. And now what this sets up is it sets up the main point of this whole chapter. Listen, this is important. The physical blindness of the man was treatable by Jesus, but the unwillingness of the Pharisees placed them beyond the power of God to be healed in their hearts. 
Now, Corey, anything is possible by God. Absolutely. But there are some things God will never do. He will never lie, and he will never force himself on us. And so in this moment, we see God can do absolutely anything, but when we are unwilling to submit, when we are unwilling to repent and to be humbled in front of him, we place ourselves outside of his ability to heal our hearts and to change our lives. And so that's the only roadblock. That's the only thing that holds back the hands of God, if you will, is our unwillingness. That's it. And we see this in the Pharisees. So the healed man, he's in, right? This guy can see now. And so Jesus had heard, look at the symbolism in this. Jesus had heard that this man had been cast out. He heard that this man had been thrown out and he has no one. And this is when Jesus comes back into the picture. Jesus finds the man and he says, hey, do you believe in the son of man? And now what we see is this. People want to argue, are we all predestined or do we all have free will? And I've answered that question before. The answer is yes, both of those things. And we see that right now. It's not a one or the other, it's both. Did Jesus find the man? Absolutely, it was predestined. Did the man have a choice? Absolutely, he did. And so we see both things collide in this, in this instance. And what we see is the response of the man is, first of all, he accepted, yes, I want to know the Savior. Imagine, guys, use your imagination. This blind man was obviously not a dumb person. He knew some theology. He knew some Old Testament. And all of the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah their entire lives. And imagine looking with your eyes that never worked before. Imagine looking at God incarnate who says, it's me. It's me. No wonder he worshiped. He just had a revelation. The Savior of the world was right in front of him. And he acknowledged him and had been touched by him. And what we see is, is that worship always accompanies genuine faith. Does that mean you have to run around the room like banging a tambourine and speaking in tongues? No, that's not necessarily what that means. But what it means is, is once God has touched our lives, when we understand who, we, who he is, there's the, only, the only rational expression after that is to worship him. When you understand that you've been touched by the creator of the universe, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, that there was nothing before him and there will never be anything greater than him ever in existence, that the only natural response is to worship him. And so what we see in this chapter, the reason why chapter 9 of John is such a neat chapter of the Bible, is you see someone who was totally ignorant of Jesus and blind, both spiritually and physically, go through this transformation process and we get to see a, a like bona fide, hardcore believer at the end of this. And it shows this complete transformation. We see a man go from blindness to sight, from bondage to freedom, from begging to boldness, from being lost and then being found by Jesus. Being kicked out by man and picked up by Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus came. He said this. He said that at the end of this, he says, I came in order that those who don't see will see and those who claim they can see will be made blind. That's what he said. And so what we see is this. Jesus is the pivotal point in all of human history. Verse 39 is about the willingness of people to see the truth. And it's essentially this that if we will be humble enough and selfless enough that God will open up our eyes to a greater reality than what we just see here. Even greater than restoring physical sight is that God will open up our spiritual sight 
of the greater reality of just this world, that there is an eternity with God. But if we are arrogant, if we are self-serving, we will never know the mysteries of God and we will never get to see the kingdom of God. We will be blind, not just now, but for eternity. We will never see that. So listen, when we refuse to recognize our spiritual blindness, when we refuse to recognize that we are dependent on God, we place ourselves in a position that is beyond His help. So let me paraphrase what Jesus says at the end of this chapter. This is essentially what Jesus says, that if you would admit your blindness, you would not be guilty because I would forgive you, but because you claim to be okay, because you claim to be all right, your sin remains. If you admit that you can't see, Jesus says, I will come in and I will, I will allow you to see. I will heal you and you can see. But if you claim that you don't need me, you know what it says in the Bible? That Jesus came for the sick, not for the well, but for the sick. The funny thing about that scripture is everyone's sick. There's no one well. There's only those that acknowledge that they need his help. We all need his help, but not everyone thinks so. There's a lot of people, even tonight, who come into this room and we just think we're okay, right? So something that I read in this chapter bothered me. The Pharisees during this time, they hear Jesus talk all this stuff about night and day. They hear Jesus talk all this stuff about sight and blindness. And they look at him, some of the Pharisees, and they say, well, are we blind too, Jesus? Do you think we're blind? Do you think we're helpless? Do you think we're, we're, uh, we're sick or that we're depraved? And it begs the question, how many of us, guys, I'm not picking on you, I do it too. How many of us walked in the room tonight being like, I'm good, right? I'm okay. I go to church every once in a while, pay my tithes, you know, I'm in a small group. My parents were Christian. I love Jesus. I know he's up there, you know. Good. How many of us walked in here with a false sense of security because we self-assess ourselves, Right? I've never killed anyone, Corey. I don't cheat on my spouse, you know? Like, you know, I'm nice to people. I tip when I go to Starbucks, you know? Like, everything's good. And what we do is we compare ourselves to each other, right? If I look at my neighbor across the street and, you know, I see how they are and they've been divorced a couple of times and, you know, he doesn't get along with his kids, I can compare myself to him and be like, I'm pretty good. And if we're not careful, we mistake self-righteousness for righteousness, See, God wants nothing to do with self-righteousness. You know what self-righteousness is? Is it's comparing ourselves to with, with each other. And again, thinking that we're better than maybe the person around us, and we kind of elevate ourselves. But Jesus doesn't say, look at your neighbor. Jesus says, compare yourself to my righteousness. Your neighbor is not the standard I want you to live at. I want you to live at my standard. Now listen, that's impossible unless we have the author of goodness and righteousness that lives inside of us. Interesting. So, here's the thing, guys, because we're always going to be real with each other at this church. If you or I ever get to a place, and I'll be the first to admit that I've been at this place before, if we ever reach a point that we think we're good enough, when we think we're okay, we may have reached a very dangerous destination. Whenever we think that we've grown enough, whenever we think we've reached 
the place that we need to be whenever we think that we are as intelligent as we need to be or spiritual as we need to be or as good as we need to be, we need to watch out. We need to watch out. So what do we do, right? Very simple, guys. If we've reached that point to where we've grown apathetic or maybe we've even grown arrogant in who we are and self-righteous in who we are, what do we do about that? The first is this, guys. Listen, and this goes for everyone in this room. This is our society, our culture, and even our Christian culture. We need to humble ourselves. We are a cocky, arrogant, very self-righteous and prideful culture. We're a very prideful, self-righteous, cocky Christian culture. We need to chill out on ourselves a little bit. We've become very arrogant, and we live in such a prideful culture right now. We need to humble, humble ourselves. And in order for us to see, guys, the first step in recovery, any of you in here who's been through it besides me, the first step in recovering is identifying the fact that you have a problem. The first step in seeing is acknowledging that you're blind. And so we need to humble ourselves. We also need to repent. I don't know what the heck is wrong with Christianity right now. We never talk about repentance. Jesus came to point out to us that we are depraved and broken and dirty, and not just to point out that fact to us, but to give us a way to be clean. And the way to be clean starts with repentance. It starts not only with saying we're sorry, God, for our rebellion and our, our apathy and whatever we have to ask for forgiveness for. It's not just saying we're sorry, but it's turning our backs on our evil actions. It's removing ourselves. Guys, it's not enough for you to say you're sorry every time you look at porn at three in the morning. You gotta get rid of the laptop. Don't throw it in the trash. Like, we'll take it, right? But whatever you gotta do. <laughs> I had someone a couple of years ago that's like, man, I threw out my PlayStation 2 and my TV, and, and I'm like, dude, why? I would take that, right? <laughs> Glad you're making steps, but uh, I would take it, so... No, but seriously though, guys, I used to be tempted a lot late at night to look at stuff. You know what I stopped doing? I stopped bringing my laptop home. It stays here in my office. If I ever get tempted on my phone, I start leaving my phone in my bedroom by my wife. She goes to bed earlier than me and I don't wanna be left alone with that. So true repentance isn't just saying you're sorry. True repentance is taking the steps to not do what you were doing, to change your thoughts, to change your actions, even to, to disassociate yourself with maybe people that are taking you in a direction you shouldn't go. Like I said earlier, we need to seek God's will, not just through prayer. We need to bust open the Bible because sometimes we don't need to pray about God's will. Sometimes God's will is just written in black and white in our Bible. I try to get all the, I shouldn't say this. I try to get all these other churches and stuff involved in like the homeless community and the different things that we do here at the church and not for our church's glory, but because the Bible says, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. That's what Jesus said. So we take it upon ourselves to go feed and clothe people that don't have those things. And sometimes pastors and churches will be like, well, I'll pray about that. By the way, if you ever talk to a pastor and he says, I'll pray about it, that probably means he's saying no. But anyways, They'll say, well, pray about it. And I'm like, dude, you don't have to pray about it. The Bible just tells you to do it. You don't have to pray about something that God already told you to do. Oh, you don't have to clap for that. I'm being a jerk right now. But anyways, <laughs> we, <laughs> we do need to seek God's will, not just through prayer, but sometimes what's written on black and white. Here's the last thing, guys. What do we do? 
What do we do if we've reached a place to where we're good enough? Or what do we need to do to grow closer to Christ? Some of us guys, we need to settle once and for all in our minds that we're persuaded. Some of us need to dig our heels in the ground and we need to stand firm on what we know is right, regardless of what culture says, regardless of what society says, regardless of what happens in politics or in economics or on the global stage, regardless of what comes at us. We need to sink our feet down deep, hold on to the strong tower that is Christ and say, I am persuaded that nothing created, no angels, no demons, nothing can separate me from the truth and from the love of God. Some of you in this room, I don't know who this is for this weekend. It might just be for one person out of the 2,500 that come to this church. It might just be for one person. It may just be for me. But some of us need to say once and for all, I'm not gonna move. This is where I stand. This is the line. This is where God wants me. And some of us waver so easily. That's because our roots are not deep enough. And the only way our roots are gonna get deep enough is through the word, through prayer, through coming to church, through building a relationship with him but we must be persuaded. We must be convinced. We must stand firm. So, maybe you're in the room tonight and you need to humble yourself. You need to properly estimate who you are. That's what humility really means, is not to have a low view of yourself, but to have a proper view of yourself. We need to humble ourselves. Some of us need to repent for maybe some things in our life, even not just saying we're sorry, but some of us need to take steps to separate us from, from things that we don't need to be around. Some of you need to seek God's will, not your will. You need to seek God's will. You need to pray. You need to read the word of God. And then some of you in the room need to lock yourself down and say, I'm not gonna move. I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. Come hell, come high water, come everything against me. I know who God is. I know what the truth is, and I'm going to stand firm on this. Listen, if you're in the room and you're new to this faith, or maybe you don't even believe in this yet, I don't know why I feel led. I said it at the five, and I don't know why I feel led to say it at this one too. I have tried holding on to everything in this life. I've had money. I've had small amounts of fame and fortune. I've had very unholy sex life before I met my wife and I had drugs, I had popularity, I had everything you, can, everything you can have in this world for the most part. And it led me to three suicide attempts. And the only thing that has opened up my eyes, the only thing that has given me contentment that has lasted, the only thing that has sustained me and been a rock that I can stand on has been Christ. That's it. And there are stories... And there are, there are stories all throughout this room of people just like that. And I could point to you and tell you people that could stand up and testify about the same thing. So if you're in this room and you're on the fence, I just want to encourage you, look for the truth. If you look for the truth, you'll find the truth. If you look for the truth, you'll find the truth. If you genuinely want to know, Jesus will present himself. Just give him time. Just give him time. He will. For those of you in the room who believe and you know we need to pray about these things, guys. We need to pray about these things. And when we take communion tonight, I wanna to challenge you. We'll leave this up here for a minute. Pray about these things. If you fall into one of these camps, okay? We need to pray about these things. There'll be people up here that'll pray with you if you need prayer. There'll be communion all the way around the room that represents the body and blood of Jesus. If you wanna take that, the only thing is you have to repent for your sins, the Bible says, before you take communion, okay? But you're welcome to do that. 
and I want to pray for you, okay? All right? Bow your heads with me. Father, Lord, I love you. God, I thank you, Jesus. Lord, as we take communion tonight and we celebrate what your son has done for us on the cross through his body and by the shedding of his blood, Lord, I pray right now tonight, God, if there are people in this room that need to humble themselves, Jesus, touch their hearts tonight. If there are people in this room that need to repent, not just say they're sorry, but take some kind of steps to move away from some sin, God, I pray that you speak to them. God, for people in this room who have questions or they're confused, Lord, let them seek your will, not only through prayer, but through your word. And God, there are people in this room right now that need to plant their feet firmly on the rock and say, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, I am in. No matter what comes against me, I am in. As Habakkuk said, even if the olive trees never bloom and even if the figs never grow, God, I am with you, Lord. I'm convinced. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone in this room who maybe struggles with their faith or they're not a believer, Lord Jesus, I pray that they just have enough courage to seek out the truth. And if they genuinely do that, God, you'll show up. I have faith in that. And we pray for those individuals, Lord, that you bless them, God. Keep us, Lord, bless us and protect us until we meet again, Lord. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. There's men and women up here to my right and left, guys. Communion's on the right and left. Help yourself. Thank you so much. Have a great night.